Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. So Luke chapter 16. Remember, most of these parables don't stand by themselves. Jesus is really using them to help illustrate and make more clear some things that he's talking about. And the parables, actually, verses 1 through 9 and then 10 through 14 is kind of giving us a little bit more detail. I would say the bottom line for this parable and what Jesus is trying to communicate would be verse 14, where the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And I think this parable is really pushing towards that verse and towards the Pharisees overall um, and their view and helping us to understand what is the right view concerning the things that are valuable. What is valuable? Remember, parables are, are meant to disrupt our thinking. It, it's going to throw us a curve. Somewhere in this parable, there's going to be something that says, wait, what? What are you talking about? And I think this is uh, one where it's pretty clear the wait, what kind of uh, point. So let's start reading, starting at verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot manage, you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves 
so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. A lot of things in this parable that makes us just question, what? What are you, what are you doing here? What, what is being commended? And what are you talking about? How we should be like the people or shrewd with the world and use money to make friends. Are we supposed to buy friends? What, what, what is he talking about here? And he really is talking about what is valuable. In the time where this is written, the Jewish people we're, we're not supposed to loan money with interest. In other words, if I loaned you money, I wasn't supposed to make interest off of that money. But what they would do is instead of loaning money, they would loan wheat or oil or things and charge you interest on that. In other words, I'm giving you this many bushels of wheat, but I'm requiring this in return with interest. And so they still had ways about, you know, around their laws to have loopholes, just like we do at tax time, right? Well, we can find ways, well, if I claim this, if I count this as a loss, then I can get this in return. And immediately what what struck here or, or with this story by the steward is someone's losing. He's losing basically money, but it shows up in how much he owed as far as the gallons of olive oil, uh, the bushels of wheat. Someone is losing something. And that is really one of the hiccups here is someone is losing something which was considered valuable but they are being commended for losing what they consider valuable. And it doesn't make sense. We're, we're struck by this. The parable is not about how to handle your finances. Okay, that's not the point of the parable. But it has a moral, moral teaching in it, really concerning money, as we're going to see later on. The if we had to face with a first century Jewish story like this, and whenever we hear the idea of a master and a steward, we have to go to a place where the master is God and the steward is Israel. Israel is supposed to be God's property manager the light of God's world. They are responsible for what God had entrusted to them. From Abraham to this point, they were supposed to, even as we've been talking about on Sundays, be the representative of God to the world. They had failed. And again, we shouldn't be too harsh on them because we probably would have failed too. But what is happening here is we are seeing in this parable that Israel is facing a major crisis. They are handling God's property in a way that is going to get them fired. They are not dealing with things correctly. And, and what their 
go-to was, if we are handling the law of God, we are handling what God wants us to do, then we need to be strict about it. We need to be tighten things up, make more more requirements, and and make people more holy. We we need to give more explanation to the law, more detail, fine tune things so that people can't make a mistake. And we're going to force people to live a holy life so that that will represent God correctly. And remember, Jesus had said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That the whole point of the law was to help men, not to be a burden to men. And I mentioned that even Sunday, that theology was made for the church, not church for theology. It's not something that's meant to lock us and hold us. It's meant to guide us. And so here, the the people of God, the Israelites, are taking this management, and what they are trying to do is lock people into doing things the right way, live the right way, represent God the right way, follow things, and anyone who is outside of this right way is cast aside. And what this parable is doing is really the opposite. Right, These regulations have actually been detrimental to what God's purpose was. And Jesus comes and gives this story and says, you know, these things that you were so concerned about, you, you shouldn't take them so legalistically. You, you shouldn't be so bound to them. And here's a story where a person who's managing does something good, but he doesn't take that, what is considered valuable, the oil, the bushels of wheat, he's actually taking less of that. And what he's doing is he's making favor with people. He's developing a relational aspect that reaches beyond the legal standards that you're holding, and he's actually connecting to people that's outside of what would be considered their responsibility. You can't take your master's product and require less. And Jesus is saying, oh, no, you need to. Because you need to make friends with these people. And and it's a little confusing. He commends the dishonest manager. He was dishonest. Why would you commend someone who is dishonest? What does that mean? It meant that he was not doing what they thought was required. And why does he commend him? Because he acted shrewdly. He, He was very wise with what he did. And he says the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. They are wiser in how they deal with each other than the people of Israel had been. They hadn't dealt with each other shrewdly. They had really limited those relationships. And he says, the worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. He's saying that people are more important than the money. 
the people are more important than your rituals, than your laws. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You are alienating the people that you really should be befriending. And when he says so that you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings, he's not talking about in heaven. He's talking about you will have a home after this place is gone. Your home is gone. You will have a place that lasts past and longer than your home. So he's not really talking about going to heaven. At least I don't believe he is. And I don't, a lot of the people I read don't believe he is either. And if we're having to deal with this, then we're having to understand how does that apply to us today? How, how could we look at this parable and, and see ourselves remember in this story? And I was thinking, I read an article today. It was about Christian music back in the 70s. And it was talking about, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Larry Norman or not, but he was kind of the person who began what was known as Christian rock and roll way back when. But the way his music began was he actually wrote music about Christ and his faith, but it was on a secular label. It was, I forget the name of the label, and it was, I think, MCI Records or something like that. And he had his albums, he had On This Rock, and then he had um, Only Visiting This Planet, which was actually inducted into, um, I forget, it was a national archive because it was so influentially uh, relevant to that period in time. And so the nation recognized it, not just Christianity. And that was the whole point of this article. There was a time when Larry Norman uh, was with Jimmy Carter and they were trying to help homeless people. And Jimmy Carter had asked Larry Norman to, you know, be a, a spokesperson for the music industry, not the Christian industry, the music industry. And then after that, when you go later on into the 80s, you have the development of the moral majority, Jerry Farwell, you had Jimmy Swaggart, uh, some of the other pastors that they mentioned. And, and all of a sudden there became a, a rigid stance of what you had to do to be right with God as far as morality was concerned. And it became very political. And the point, again, of the article is when it became very political, then what happened is we had people moving things over so that we now had our Christian labels, our Christian music, where before it was music that was sharing a faith, but now it became the faith's music. And as I was reading the article and I was thinking about this parable and, and how it really does kind of represent what had happened with the Pharisees. They had become so exclusive that people outside of their small way of thinking 
were alienated. And as things were going to get bad, they were going to run out of friends. And if they didn't extend themselves to people who were even outside the Jewish faith, they were going to be in real trouble, especially in 70 AD when Rome came and laid waste to Jerusalem. Who are your friends now? And what happened to the church was very similar in that there was an uprising of this, you know, moral majority and it became very popular. And then we had a big business with Christian music that is still a multi-million dollar business. And we started kind of getting this segregated place in our society and making our own music for our own people that pretty soon we limited our friends who were on the other side. This is our music. This is our, you know, bookstore. This is our things. And it very much kind of alienated that. And we saw the church begin to decline drastically in numbers. And then there was a big, oh no, what's happening to the church? You know, the church is declining and is, you know, this the end of Christianity. And then people started trying to enforce, no, we're going to maintain our, you know, our position. And we've seen it happen and it's kind of been a transition. I mean, I remember focus on the family was originally just about families. Then it became very political right? And promulgating, these are the people we're supporting. And then people pushed back. And and then we saw the church numbers going down and people started to panic. And so they pushed harder. No, we need to hold our moral. And I really think this parable is fitting along with that. Jesus saying, don't hold on to the these things so tightly that you lose the importance of connecting and making friends. You're so legalistic and you're holding on to your belief system at the expense of what is really important, which is people. And here they were holding on to the law and they were going to live according to that, but they were losing people. And he says the people of the world, meaning the Gentiles, they're wiser, they're more shrewd in how they develop friendships with their money so that they have things that are long after the money is gone. You should be like that. You should take value in people instead of your religion, your tradition, your legalistic views. What is valuable to you, if it's not people, then it's misguided. And so it's important that we see this because... What Jesus is trying to promote is a connection to the people who are being marginalized, the people who are being looked down upon, the people who were not living the righteous religious life. And if we take that and put it in our framework today, what, who would those people be? And shouldn't we do like the world is doing and being wise and how we use what we have and make friends instead of building walls. He goes on in verse 10. 
Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy in someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Think about how money dominates our media, our culture, the world, right? Follow the money. I mean, it's everywhere. If there's a crime, uh, something is being done, dishonest in business, follow the money. Who's getting the money? Who's getting paid off? Who's profiting from this? And it could be from drug lords, right, to doctors, to, you know, lobbyists, to lawyers, to politicians. The money is going somewhere, and usually the end of the corruption is where the dollars are falling. It's kind of how things are dominated in our society, you know, and you think about how the lines get blurry, you know, when does it stop being a gift and becoming a bribe? You know, where is those lines when we're using it? When is it right to use other people's money to make money for yourself? And when's it wrong? When is it okay? And when is it wrong? To use someone's money. And we all have seen those Ponzi schemes and those movies where people have taken money, right? And they've taken money and they've lied to them about the investment. And then those people have lost it, lost everything. I forget the name of that one movie, um, with Robert De Niro. Do anyone remember? Just recently, it was a great movie. Anyway, uh, it, it's one of these things where the money drives the madness. And the key to all this is faithfulness and being trusted. If money is a possession, money should not be a possession. It should be something that's entrusted. And the whole idea here is if we are being entrusted with valuable things, then those valuable things better be benefiting the people that God considers valuable. If it's only benefiting you, then how can God trust you with what he has to give? What makes us trustworthy is having value in the same things that God has value in. I I always think this about my prayers. If I had all my prayers answered, would my life be better or would the world be better? Right? Lord, I need a new car. Lord, I need to get this fixed. Lord, help my, you know, you know, kids not to give me a headache. Lord, how much of my prayer is about making my life better And how much of my prayer is about making life better? If you got the prayers you prayed for, would the world be better or just your world? 
And this is where we start seeing, can we be trusted with what's valuable? Or are we going to use it as a possession that we take hold of? God entrusts property to people and expects it to be used for his glory and welfare for his children, not just for their own purposes. If he gives you something, it's so that you can use it for his purposes, whatever it is. That doesn't mean that, okay, I've got to make my home, you know, a commune or a homeless shelter. No, it's just whatever you have, do you see it as a tool that God can use or are you using it just for yourself? It's interesting to be in a place I'm in working in one neighborhood that is very affluent. Got all these kind of movie stars and people who live there and the homes are just incredible. Multi-million dollar homes. And you can tell who the workers are and who the people living in the home are by the cars they drive. Right? There's the Maserati, there's the Audi, there's the Mercedes, there's the Ferrari, there's the Ford, there's the Toyota. Right? There's just this real class. Now, it's nothing wrong with driving a Ferrari. I wish I drove one. The problem is if it's all about how you can please yourself. If everything that you have, the money, the property, whatever you accumulate is about hoarding or gathering more, then you can't be trusted with what's really important. And generosity is really a gift. And being generous allows us to be more like God. Money also, according to this passage, points beyond itself to to what's really valuable, what true riches are, and what they are in life. Again, it's not just because you'll go to heaven. It's you will actually develop relationships that will help you. How many people have gotten jobs because they knew somebody? Right? I know someone, they put in a good word for me, I got the job. What was more valuable at that point? There were a lot of people with the same education, but you knew someone and they put in a good word and you got the job. Right? Those are the kinds of things that we have to see as valuable. Talking to a friend of mine this week and she's going through just some struggles. She's uh, pregnant, has a little child and uh, her husband's out of work, steady work, and because she's pregnant, she can't work. And she's just very depressed going through all these things and just, you know, wanting to know what, what does God want from me? What, what's going on? Why am I here in this position where I'm at? You know, and, and I told her, you've, you've got a right to be bummed out. I'd be depressed if I was pregnant, had a baby and was out of work. I think that's a legitimate emotion to be feeling. But I looked back and kind of shared with her, Corrine, and my story. I can remember when Corrine was pregnant, we already had three children. We were living at my mom's house. (laughs) 
and I had gotten laid off. And I can remember being very depressed. And I look back and I think, I wish I would have been more present with my wife, with my kids. I wish I would have been in a better frame of mind instead of being so stressed and worried because all that would have been investment into the future. God has been faithful. God has been good. Things did work out better than I saw at that time. But what would have been the advantage if I would have actually invested in the lives of the people around me instead of just worried about how I get more money? I would have still had to work a couple of jobs. I still would have had to do the things that I did. But I could have changed by being more present with the people. And that would have been to my advantage as time goes on. You know, and so that's all I, I could encourage her with. I said, you know, I know it seems bleak, but be there for your son. Be there for your husband. Be there for yourself. Realize that you can still enjoy your life right here where you're at. Still look and do what you can to find work. Still be praying and asking God to open closed doors. Do all those things, but don't forget that it's the people that matter. And that's really at the heart of this. You know, this situation was very noticeable at that time of Jesus. There was the really wealthy, and then most of the people were very poor, even more than this neighborhood where I'm working. You know, at this time, it wasn't just these people had Porsches and these people had Toyotas. It was these people had horses. These people had nothing. Right. These people had and these people had not. And so there is a, a large diversity and there's always a lot more people without than there are people that have. The rich included the chief priests. They were the ones who were making money. They were the ones who were kind of utilizing this in a long way. The Pharisees were more of a populist movement. They were kind of more with the people, but they acquired land and got a lot of land. And so they kind of felt that was their key and their value, I guess, in that part of the religion um, to kind of be considered a blessing. And Jesus's warning at the end of the chapter is really something that's made clear that this is not the way you're supposed to live where you can get what you can and don't worry about anyone else. Here, Jesus insists starkly that God's standards are not just subtly different from human ones, but they're opposite, that they are very distinct. And so when he tells them who loved money and they heard all these things about, first of all, the parable, the the person who, you know, gave up what was valuable to make friends, talking about Only people who can be trusted are going to be trusted with what God is, that you can't serve God and money. They thought money was a blessing. No, money is a blessing from God. What are you talking about? You'll be devoted to one or the other. And so they sneered at him because they loved money. And they were sneering at Jesus. And he said, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly 
What is that? What do people value highly? They value money. Possessions. Is detestable in God's sight. And we have to confront this idea of more is better. We have to confront this idea that we are here to make our lives comfortable. There's nothing wrong with comfort, but if that is your idea of life, you're not being, you're going to be entrusted with what's valuable. It's not about making yourself comfortable. It's about making the world better. It's about bringing God's love to others. James said, if you see your brother in need, right, and you have the means to help him, but you don't, where's the love of God? And it's hard when we live in such a consumer-driven society. It's hard for me. When I get bummed or if I get extra money, if I had a good week in working, I like to shop. I want to go on Amazon. I'm going to get something. Right? And there has to be a point where you just say, wait, why? Why do you need more? Why do you need anything? Now, what I need to do is help my granddaughters get into volleyball or help them get into another class. And that's money well spent, right? Instead of getting another pair of shoes, instead of getting something else that I want that isn't going to make me happy. Uh, And so there is this kind of confrontation with this story and just asking what's valuable to you. What matters most to you? What are you living for? What is your goal? What can God entrust to you monetarily? Because that's going to be similar to what he can trust entrust to you in every other way. Because where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And so... <clears throat> This is kind of a harsh parable really dealing with the greed of the Pharisees and those who want. But I think it was something that hit me hard as well because I don't realize how much that I'm driven just by culture, by the world. You know, got to have the next thing, got to have the better thing. And it's difficult. It's difficult because we're being pressed into these things and you start desiring these things Instead of desiring good things, things for people, things that help, things that make a difference, things that really connect us to people, things that then have value because you talk to someone and, oh, you know, I know that. And so now, you know, if you want to, oh, I need a new car. Well, I've got a friend who works at this place. Well, now you get a good deal. Why? Because your friend works there, right? Instead of, I just need a new car, I'm going to go to a dealer, don't know anybody. Well, you develop a relationship, and now it actually pays for itself somewhere down the line in so many ways, in so many ways. There will be a time in your life and my life where you need somebody. 
And that's what you invest in today. Any questions? Thoughts? Complimenting dishonesty. Yeah, and again, remember the parable is supposed to do that. It's supposed to make you go, huh? What? Yeah, it's like, what is that? And because the point is, right, here's the point. The, the area where you're being disrupted in your thinking is the point Jesus is trying to make, right? You're valuing this when you should be valuing that. And the reason that bothers us so much is because we think, no, this is the right way to do it. And he's saying, yeah, this is the right way to do it, right? This is the right way to do it. And just as you're disrupted because a dishonest person is being commended, that's the whole point. It's supposed to cause the disruption because we are valuing something that's less than what is more. And so, yeah, that, that's the whole point of this story is to challenge what we value. Well, and again, you know, we have a, a frame of mind that can definitely limit our understanding of what's being said if we don't go back to the culture and how things are taking place at that time. Um, it's real important to understand, really important to understand Jesus talking to these Pharisees and where they were at and what they considered value and how they use things to get their own status and keep it in that frame of mind. Otherwise we do, we, we, we just look at it on a, well, it's not fair. It's not the right way. This is right. This is wrong. We're very black and white. We have a very dualistic set of ideas, right? This is the right way to do it. And this is the wrong way to do it. And Jesus is kind of saying, listen, you're taking things too far. It's always about people, right? It's always valuing people over the things. If you have a God who takes advantage of people, it's not this God. If you worship a God who brings harm to people, then this is the wrong God, right? This is a God who cares, loves, and values people more than anything. And we have to kind of keep that in mind because we live in a time where it's easy to not worry and not think about the consequences of our actions. You buy a shirt and it costs, you know, three bucks, and you think, I got the shirt and it'll cost three bucks, but it costs someone over in Thailand their life, you know, and, and we don't think about that. Oh, I don't want to think about that. But then you start finding out, well, you know, there are these sweat shops and there are these working conditions that people are actually dying working in these conditions so that we can get a $3 shirt, right? Oh, I want my $3 shirt. I mean, I will travel 10 miles to save $2 sometimes, right, to get that shirt. And we don't realize that, wait, what? what is the moral thing to do when you know about that, right? And you know that, okay, if I buy these clothes from these people and I'm getting it for this, what's it costing the people who are making them? Those are things we, you know, we just don't think about that much. We don't like to. <clears throat> I just want to get a $3 shirt. And so... We have to kind of challenge ourselves in some ways. Well, what should I do? 
Well, maybe you can find out what companies buy from who, what companies are reputable. Maybe you can go to thrift stores and get some things. Maybe, you know, you can find ways to save money but not take advantage of other people. Anyone who's not Jewish. No, anyone who wasn't Jewish was a Gentile. Yeah. I mean, when you read Gentile in the in the scripture, you might as well just say the rest of the world. Right? When Paul says the Gentiles, he's talking about the whole world. He's not just talking about Romans. He's talking about the rest of the world. And so, yeah, it's very broad, you know. And it just shows, again, God's purpose. God's intention originally in the garden was that man would walk in fellowship with God, created in God's image, would care for the garden, you know, the the creation that God had entrusted him with. He betrayed God, as we talked about Sunday, by choosing an autonomy away from God more than just a dependency on God, by eating that to become like God's. He is exiled from the gardener. They are exiled from the garden. God entrusts Abraham to now do like what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. You are now my people. You are now supposed to be my representative. They end up not representing. They end up doing the same thing, exiled. And now we see Christ comes in and he's doing exactly what was supposed to be done. The first Adam, now the last Adam, represents God fully. He does what Israel failed to do. And he's now brought us into this story. You are to be a kingdom of priests. You are to be a royal priesthood. What are we supposed to do? You're supposed to bear my image. What does your image look like? It looks like Jesus. Okay, and that's what we, where we find ourselves. And so these parables that Jesus is talking about, it's to help people live with other people the way they're supposed to. Right? It, it, it really is. And that's why where he's talking about, you know, welcome into eternal dwellings. I don't believe it's like, oh, and then you'll get to go to heaven. I believe it's talking about, no, then there will be a place for you after this place is gone. I think he was talking very specific to them and how it was going to be necessary for them to have friends that were a part of their life. Again, that was the mindset in the first century it wasn't two years later the idea of dying and going to heaven came into the story. Um, there's a lot more I could say about that, but I won't. And, and isn't it unfortunate that, at least in my life, when I became a follower of Christ, of course, we moved a lot, so my friendships changed. But we had so little connection to people who were apart from faith. Right. Our friends were all people at church. And so many people have only Christian friends. You know, not everyone, but so many people do. It's like all my friends are Christians. And what church has become, you know, is the place where even like I was talking about where, you know, there was a time when you just had friends and you were a follower of Christ. But then there was this swing. If you're a Christian, we got to kind of huddle together. And it really has changed things. I mean, if you heard on the radio, um, you know, playing all your favorite uh, Muslim hits in music, what would you think? You'd think, that's not for me. Right? It's not my station. Right? That's for them. 
what do you think they think when they hear all our Christian hits? It's like, oh, that's for those people. That's not for us. See, there was a time when it was just music and, oh, I can connect to that. And a lot of people did. Because the music's got a great story to it, right? It's got great depth to it. It's filled with emotion and, and beauty. But it's ours. You know, same thing with Christian movies. Oh, it's a Christian movie. Okay, that's your movie. You know, oh, it's a Buddhist movie. Okay, that's their movie. You know, you'd immediately associate it with that it's not for you. So what happens when we start hearing these things and these things? Oh, it's a Christian movie. Okay, well, that just stopped a lot of people from going to it, even if it's a great movie, because of how we've labeled things. It could be. I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, we, again, shoot ourselves in the foot so many times because how we do things. Yeah, and that's exactly the point, right? You, you've got that person there, and now your life has been extended, you know, through that relationship. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm amazed with dog training how many people open up and start talking to me. I mean, I've got people talking to me about depression. I've got people talking to me about their kids. I've got people just opening up, and I'm the dog trainer. Right. I come in there. I mean, if I wanted to have a conversation with someone and I could tell them I pastor a church or I train dogs, I would go with I train dogs. Because once I say I'm a pastor of a church, the conversation is guarded. It's shut down. It's like, you know, yes, I'm a cannibal. Let's go out to lunch. You know, it's not going to work. But once I say I'm a dog trainer, oh, I have a dog. What about this? And they just like jump all in and talking to me, asking me a million questions just because I'm a dog trainer. Right. And it's, it's amazing. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, again, your words have a way of challenging us, of disturbing us in our way of thinking. And I pray, Lord, that as that happens, we would wrestle and find out what you are speaking to each one of us, the areas where we need to grow, the areas where we are maybe uh, giving ourselves over too much to materialism and to things rather than to you and to people. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, in living our lives to represent you well, to extend our lives beyond our church walls uh, to the world around us, Lord. And God, I also pray just for this building as Friday we meet and talk over some things again, how to move forward. Um, you would give us wisdom and go before us, Lord. I pray that you would continue to provide not just financially, Lord, but people uh, in Genesis community, those who call Genesis home, Lord, that they would uh, be committed to being with us and a part of us and a part of what's going on, Lord, that we could encourage one another and be a strength for one another and that we could be a place that does extend your love to the community around us. Give me wisdom how to do that, Lord, how to lead that give us a heart after you. Thank you again for this time. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. 
You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.